turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 3, and we are in a section of Scripture that provides us some opportunity for summary as well as um, maybe a, a chance just to take a, a brief pause this morning and, and a little more and focus more deeply on one idea. I'm going to be focusing on the notion of Christ being our foundation this morning. It's going to be uh, something that Paul mentions. So I, I thought I would begin by us thinking about foundation. What is what is a foundation? Um, So here, I'll show you a picture. This is a picture of an old shed that used to be on my my uh, property. And I wanted to build, we have eight chickens now. And I said to, I said to my wife, I want to build a chicken coop and I want to go large. And you know, I don't want to do a little thing. I want to do this grandiose hotel, the chicken and so she, you know, I see her face, and she begs me, she begged me not to put another building on the property. She said, why don't you just use the old shed? Well, the problem with the old shed, and this picture is a little bit difficult. Um, it actually exaggerates something that's already there. The problem with this shed is it's sinking into the ground. On the right side of the picture, the right side of the shed, if you were to walk in it, the cross beam uh, that the roof structure is built on is up by my shoulder. It's about five feet high. If you go to the other side of the shed, that very same beam is about two and a half feet off the ground. And now there's two reasons for that. The reason one is that the shed has sunk into the hill. And reason two is that the hill has come into the shed because there's no foundation. It's sinking. Uh, no, there's no foundation to hold the structure, the weight of the structure. And there's no foundation to keep the hill back. And so as a result, if you were to go into this, it's, it's gone now. Uh, but if you were to go into this, uh, you would be walking uphill to walk through the shed. We replaced it with something of the same dimensions, but we dug, um, we went grand. It's exactly the same dimensions, but we dredged out a footer and we poured concrete. I mean, this is like chicken Alcatraz now. There's just no way, I mean, that a squirrel will ever get underneath or around, I mean, a squirrel fox. Uh, it is impervious to all threats um, and will remain until the day of the Lord. Now, I want to show you another building. My wife and I were here this, just this week. That is the Biltmore uh, residence, the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the largest remaining privately owned house in the country. And if you look in the bottom right hand of the picture, you'll see a white like shuttle bus. That white shuttle bus is about the size of the chicken shed. Okay. Um, this Biltmore Estate was a sort of a, a modern marvel of engineering. 
And that's one of the reasons we visited it is I, I, I've long wanted to, to see it and to kind of study it. And at every level, there's something impressive. You know, no matter what floor you're on, no matter what room you're in, they have something impressive to tell you. But you get to the basement, and when, you, when you're in the basement, they show you the foundation of the structure. And they say that the foundation of the Biltmore, the footers, the, uh, the foundation on which the house is built, they are 14 feet wide. And they are 28 feet deep, in, deep into the ground to hold all of that weight. It's a lot bigger than a chicken shed. I mean, my chicken shed is 336 square feet. That's 179,000 square feet. And it's resting on a massive foundation that can hold it up. That's what a foundation does. It holds up the superstructure. And if your foundation's not right, we've all seen the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? It wasn't built that way. It had a bad foundation. A skyscraper, like in New York City, a tall skyscraper, sometimes they need to drive pylons 150 feet into the ground to get to bedrock, to hold all of that weight that would be applied on such a small spot. Foundations bear the weight of the structure. Paul's going to draw on this here in the third chapter. He's working through a problem in the church. And the problem in the church is that they have become more attracted with teachers. They've become more attracted with individual, like, learned ideas and the ideas of men than they have with the story of Jesus. And because of that, there are, several things are happening. They're wandering, and there's division. So in the first chapter, Paul talks about the quarreling that's taking place among them. In this chapter, he's going to talk about strife and jealousy that's among them. And, it's, and all Paul has to do is look at the fruit of their behavior, their strife and their jealousy, to realize they're not living life as though it's, they're built on Christ. Now, let me read the first four verses of the third chapter. It sort of summarizes a lot of what's already been said. He says, but, bro- but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while... There is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I'm reluctant to give uh, present-day examples, but I think if you've been around church at all, you could know that people are prone sometimes to latch on to doctrinal hobbies or themes or arguments and find an interest in those things over, over and above the story of Jesus. I'm, I, this is part of my own, just confessionally, part of my own life was growing through one of these 
I would call them higher arguments. They're, but they're not better arguments. And Paul is saying, listen, the whole body, the whole fellowship is at stake. You're threatening to divide the whole fellowship by chasing after or uh, becoming factionalized behind certain teachings, certain teachers. And he says, the very fact that I see misbehavior, this sort of poor behavior in the fellowship tells me everything I need to know. This really is, I mean, the book of 1 Corinthians is not all that doctrinal. It's not highfalutin talk. He's not really that interested in the text as to what the particular debates were. He says, look, I see the fact that you're mistreating one another and that's all I need to know. You're not mature. When I came to you the first time, you were like infants. From what I'm hearing now, you haven't grown up. You're still caught in these petty arguments. And he seeks to sort of rephrase how they should think about the various teachers who have come through for them. This is what he says in the fifth verse. What then is Paul? Or excuse me, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, but we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. There's a group that wants all about the teachings of Paul, and there's a group that's all about the teachings of Apollos, and Paul, first of all, wants to say, look, we're teaching together. I planted and he watered. If you separate what we're teaching, like you're losing the power of it. That's the first thing. The second thing he does is he subordinates himself to the church, to the very church to whom he's teaching, right? The, the church is in the, the problem that they're placing themselves beneath teachers rather than simply placing themselves beneath Jesus. They're placing themselves beneath teachers. And so Paul says, what were we other than farmhands? That's all we were. All I ever was, Paul says, is a farmhand. Who cares who the farmer is? It's the crop that matters. He's actually placing himself beneath them. I think in our, our day and time, we, we, we understand the science of things, and so sometimes it's easy to lose the mystery of it all, but it really it still feels somewhat mysterious and miraculous to me that you put a seed in the ground and a plant shows up. That's so much bigger than it. That serves so many functions. It's really quite amazing. It certainly was mysterious. Mysterious to them. It was a work of God. And he's saying, look, I played a small part. I took the seed and I put it in the ground. God, God is the one who's growing it. Why not be enamored in him? After all, Apollos and I are just farmhands. Now, the very last verse in, in that passage that I just read, verse 9, the very last phrase of that last verse, he shifts the image. So 
In one hand, he says, you're a field. In another, in a moment, he says, you're a building. You're a building. He's going to come on, go on to say in verse 16, don't you realize that you are God's temple? Do you realize, church, you're the temple of God? That's where he's ultimately going. But right here, he's, he's saying, he's shifting gears. Everything I said about a field, I'm sort of going to say again with building language. And, and I, I actually just want to read two more, two more verses uh, for the day. Verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul describes his ministry as though he's doing the foundational work. I came, he says. I mean, the image in your mind is I laid a base of truth upon which all the other truth can stand. Like, I laid the substructure down so that the superstructure can live. And when he ultimately says you're the temple, I mean, that gives light to that. God's trying to make a glorious temple. I mean, it's like a Biltmore, not chicken shed, right? God wants to do a great thing with his people. And Paul's saying, and I laid a suitable foundation, like a master builder, I laid a suitable foundation to bear the weight of all that is to come. And that foundation, he calls Jesus. He says, none other than Jesus Christ. You can't build another foundation other than Jesus Christ. Now, what I think I'd like to do this morning is uh, stop here in 1 Corinthians 3 and spend some time talking about what what does Paul mean when he says a foundation which is Christ? What is that? Already, I, and I, I'm just telling you from my own personal feeling, I, I just can't continue to pass one-liner summaries of the gospel without sharing the gospel. So already in 1 Corinthians, he says, I came and I, I chose to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Earlier he said, I came knowing nothing but the message of the cross. Here he says, I did nothing but I laid the foundation. Earlier he says, all I did was plant. And I feel like how many times can, can we just keep moving over the gospel, uh, which is the very thing he says is the most important thing um, just because he has a one-liner. So what I'd like to do today is just stop at the idea of foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and say, what is that? What is the foundation of our faith? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to share whether whether you're new to the faith or you're old in the faith. It's probably this is this, consider this morning an opportunity to come back to what is the basic thing upon which we build our whole faith. And it's something like this. This is what we believe. God is great and he's sovereign and he made everything. And he made mankind in his image. You and me, we are made in the image of God and he blessed us and he was good to us in the beginning. 
And he took us and he placed us in paradise. He set us in paradise and there was no thing wrong. Nothing wrong. And it was in the midst of paradise that man rebelled. We rebelled from the goodness of God. That's how it happened. And when we rebelled from God in paradise, we fell away. There was a separation that was built and our rebellion has, we've come to call that sin. That's the word we use to describe rebellion from God as sin. And sin is not just one act. Adam didn't just sin one time. It is like a disease. I think a way that we could understand it in our time is to think of it in a viral nature. It is an epidemic virus of the soul is what sin is. So you don't just sin, you become a sinner. And we continue to sin. And more than simply uh, an epidemic, it's a pandemic. There's no one on earth who's not sinning. There's, we've, never un, we've never discovered a village in the deepest, darkest jungles of whatever place you go where, oh my goodness, these people have never sinned. It's it, every human sins. And it's passed down. It's almost as though it's a genetic deficiency. I sin and my children sin. And their children will sin. And they don't need to be taught how to sin. They come by it quite naturally. So it is a pandemic across generations. It's also incurable. Our, uh, we have, just about every people group that you can think of in history has tried to solve this problem, tried to solve the problem of the human and has failed. You could go through the annals of history. Of every, if you could learn every language and go to every library, you would discover efforts to cure the basic human problem of sin and we have not appreciably approached the answer. The 21st century is not that far advanced from the 1st century. It is an incurable disease. And it is terminal. Everyone will die from sin. Actually, everyone dies from nothing other than sin. There are a few pre differing presenting symptoms, but we die from sin. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The beginning of the story of the Bible says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And on that day, sin and death entered into the story of mankind when they ate from the tree. It's a generational pandemic that is incurable and it is terminal. And it manifests itself in various different sorts of ways. Sin is sort of like a cancer on the soul. It, plays, it, it, it behaves like a cancer, meaning just as though a person can have skin cancer or bone cancer or pancreatic cancer or lung cancer, sin can metastasize itself to different places and different people. So you can have one person who is captive to sin in their fear. 
and another person who's held captive to sin in their arrogance. Same disease, just different organ of the soul. Sin separates us from God. God is perfectly good. God is truly holy and righteous. And he does not fellowship with sin. So from the sin of the first man and woman to our sins now, there is a gulf, there's a distance of separation. The greatest grace of God in a sin-ridden world is that he separates himself from it. Because God is good and man is sinful, there's a problem. It becomes between us and God. It saddens the Lord. It angers the Lord. It frustrates the Lord. And it frustrates him more than it frustrates us. You see evil and I see evil and it hits us. God, it frustrates God more because he knows the real truth of the matter. He who is truly good sees evil for exactly what it is. He alone fully knows the depth and the darkness for what it is. He alone can truly discern motive. He alone can truly understand the chain of events that led to sin. He alone has no blindness. We are blind to our sin in many ways. He sees us for who we are. When we acknowledge that God is good and perfect, and we acknowledge that he's just, we have a bit of a challenge. Because how can a good God not be just? <laughs> to be good, to be just is to be good. Justice is part of his goodness. We might say this, that we believe that God could have ended the story of mankind entirely and had been, he could have been good and just in doing it. So how does a good God excuse sinful people and remain just? You might not be a Christian, or you might just be kind of God-curious, and I want to say, you know, I respect that. Um, we all started not as Christians. So um, I, I was where you were, and I, I would say, while it may be hard for some people to get over Jonah, you know, being swallowed by a fish, or Noah's Ark, or whatever, one thing that the Christian faith has wired is its understanding of the human soul and the quandary before a holy God. It takes the problem seriously. About 3,500 years ago, a law was given to Moses and a religion grew up, which we have come to call Judaism. It was a religion of the Hebrews, and it took this problem very seriously. 
The Hebrew people had a God unlike any God of their time. They were thousands of years ahead as far as their conception of God from the next competitive religion, of uh, thoughtful religion. The God of the Jews was a moral God. The God of the, God of the Egyptians was not a moral God. The God of the Assyrians was not a moral God. The God of the Persians was not moral. The gods of the Greeks, certainly not moral. The gods of the Romans, not moral. The gods of the Celts, not moral. The, God, the gods of the Gauls, not moral. He alone was the only moral. You go off to Far East Asia, you find the earliest vestiges of religion. They are not talking about moral gods. They're talking about powerful, fearful gods. Only the God of the Jews was actually concerned about good things. About justice, about righteousness, about love, about the well-being of mankind. Only the God of the Hebrews. It is the God of the Hebrews. And we read these things and think they're just, yeah, they're supposed to be there. These are radical, radical statements for a God to say he cares about the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. That is cataclysmically unique religion. Singular in its time. A moral God? Baal was not moral. Baal was powerful. Moloch was not moral. Moloch was powerful. Our God is right and true. And he cares about truth and goodness far more than you or I ever will. And he began to knit and sew among the Hebrew people a faith. And in that faith, there was a rhythm that he built into them. It was a rhythm of sacrifice for sin. Someone would sin, there needed to be sacrifice. Or sin, there needed to be sacrifice. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. Throughout that whole, that whole, their whole people, deep in the fabric of who they were, the rhythm of sin followed by sacrifice had to be done. They had to know that if God was in fact going to draw close to them, that they needed to appreciate that every sin ultimately, ultimately resulted in the death of something. And for them, for a time, God substituted animals in. They make a sin, substitute a bull. They had to know. Sin breeds death. It is terminal. During the time of the Jewish faith, as it's arising... God sends prophets, and through the mouths of the prophets, an idea arises, an idea comes to be that God is going to fix this problem once and for all. One day he's going to send a man, a man will come, and a man will satisfy this need. A man will cure this illness. A man will bridge sick humans to a holy God. And that man is Jesus. Jesus is, in the Hebrew language, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come. 
and Jesus is from God, he's of God, and he came, Jesus came to bring the mercy of God by enduring the justice of God. How does a good and loving God who is just show mercy? By taking on himself his justice, which is what Jesus did. Jesus, who's from God, came. Jesus walked as a man. Jesus endured life as a man. Jesus, like a man, was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Jesus was pure and holy. He was unlike you and me. He was uninfected. And Christ bore the just wrath of our sin on his shoulders. When mankind rejected Christ and hung him on the cross, Jesus, the text, scriptures talk about almost him climbing up on the cross to put death to shame. He bore the full weight of all the sin of the earth on his shoulders so that every man, woman, and child who ever would be could call on the name of God and get an answer so that we might have hope. Because God is good and just and loving and merciful and compassionate. We believe he took our place on the cross and that on the third day he rose again to validate his sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates the supremacy of Christ over the weight of sin. Paul will later in 1 Corinthians say, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected, we have wasted our lives. We among all people should be pitied because the work of Christ was insufficient, but he is resurrected. Our hope is in the work of Christ and we can't merit this. We can't earn this. This is not something that Jesus says, like, I died for you, and here's the cost. The only thing that you and I can do to enjoy the work of Christ is to recognize it, is to see it for what it is, to acknowledge it for what it is. That's faith. Faith is you and me staring at the work of Jesus and recognizing it for what it is. It's waking up, getting out of bed, and living life beneath the knowledge that Jesus knows your brokenness from top to bottom and died for you so that you could know his father well, so that you could pray to his father. That's what it means to recognize. That's what faith is. It's not you getting perfect It's you recognizing what he's done for you and allowing that to produce fruit in your life. We believe, well, I'm not done yet. We believe that in defeating death, God has also done a second act, which is he sent his spirit, right? Christ died for us and paid the penalty of our sin, but the spirit of God is given to those who believe in him, 
and the spirit works in our lives now. It wars against the sin that is at present in us to purify us. The spirit in us is our friend, drawing us closer to God, livening our recognition of the work of Christ, and empowering us with his spirit so that we can do good things, so that we can actually be as God is, so that we can, it sort of feels like as you begin through artificial imitation of God towards natural imitation of God, right? So that we can actually become godly. The Spirit is working in us. For those who have the Spirit, they bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the ones listed for us. Those who have the Spirit bear fruit. Those who recognize Christ have the Spirit. And those who have the Spirit bear fruit. This, by the way, is what bothers Paul so much. This is what he sees. He's not worried about their, so much their intellectual arguments. He's worried about their fruit. He says, why do I see quarreling, strife, and jealousy? Those are not fruits of the Spirit. Something is not right. We believe that one day Jesus will come again and he will know those who know him. He will recognize those who recognize him. And those who do not recognize him, he will not recognize. And on that day, God's perfect justice will resolve all things. Those who rely on the saving blood of Jesus Christ will find hope and love and mercy in the arms of God. And those who have refused to recognize Christ through his revelation will receive justice. This is the foundation of the faith. I, I suppose there's a slightly shorter way of doing it. I'm sure there's a longer way. Paul did it for 18 months. So you got it for 18 minutes. This is the foundation of the faith. Uh, everything, everything we have is built on this. Every doctrine rests its weight on this. Every secondary teaching on this. The songs on this. Why we sing on, I mean, you, all the visible. This is the interesting thing. The kind of jarring perspective in this illustration is that God, Paul, puts Jesus hidden in the ground. It's the foundation. And the superstructure is built on him. And it's, it's kind of that kind of jars my spirit, but the truth of the matter is, is you don't see Jesus right now, and I don't see Jesus right now. Like his work is out of sight. Yet everything we do is built on it. Everything God would have us do is built on it. because we are his temple. The foundation of Christ can bear all weight. It is not irrelevant to any issue in your life. 
it is singularly relevant to every issue in your life. If you have an issue of health, the message of Christ is relevant. If you're at the end of your days, the message of Christ is relevant. If your marriage is in trouble, the message of forgiveness, grace, peace, trust, relevant. You do not need to go somewhere else. On this, everything is built. And I just, I'll close with this idea that we are, verse 16, don't you know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Christ is not a foundation for a chicken coop. He's, he's there so that we can rise to be a temple. We should shine. When Paul says temple, whether it's in Jerusalem or if it's in Ephesus or Corinth, it didn't matter. You know where the temple was? It was on the high place. It was way up on the hill. The whole town looked up on it, sat in its shade. It aspired to it. That's that's what God's doing. God's will for us is that we become the holy aspiration of our community, that we are different and that we're brilliant, that we stand out. And that happens by being built on Christ. Allow me to pray. Lord, whether it's someone here listening for the first time or someone old in the faith who's remembering an old story. We lift you up. I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be those here who might find comfort in your love, that you would love them so much that you would go after them. Seek them out. Lord, many of us here understand what it means to have um, a child and love them dearly, Lord. And the Father gave his Son so that we might know him again. And the Son gave himself. What measure of love is that, Lord? I pray that, Lord, if there's a person here today who needs to needs to know the love of God, that they would see it in that. I pray, Lord, that there would be, if there's a person here today who needs to be called out of sinfulness, that they might see God died to put that to an end. Why are you still doing it? Cry out to the Spirit. Cry out to the Lord. He came to destroy sin and death. Lord, may we be discontent in our unholiness. May we long for your likeness because you've made a way. 
May we long to be like you. And as we are built into a temple on this great foundation, may our town, our city, our neighborhoods, our people, may they see and wonder at you. We pray this in Jesus' name.